We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. The House of Asterion. By Jorge Luis Borges. It feels very epic, right? Oh, yeah. Like you're going on an epic adventure? (laughs) I had no idea what I was going to get into. I mean, you never know what you're going to get into with a Borges short story. But this one particularly, I just never heard anything about it. Every time you get into Borges, you think it's going to be this mind-melting story. And this one was a nice surprise that it was just this almost twist on a story. Well, even the way he writes it, if you look at this opening, it says, And the queen gave birth to a child who was called Asterion. I know they accuse me of arrogance and perhaps misanthropy and perhaps of madness. Such accusations, for which I shall extract punishment in due time, are derisory. It is true that I never leave my house, but it is also true that its doors, whose numbers are infinite, footnote, the original says 14, but there is an ample reason to infer that as used by Asterion, this numeral stands for infinite, are open <laughs> day and night to men and to animals as well. Anyone may enter. The the DNA is there for Borges from the beginning, right? Because you've got duplication of Asterion, right? Like having multiple people from history being named Asterion. You've got the narrator, like the narrator being untrustworthy. Like he's like, no, 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 don't worry about it. Like you just, just trust me. These people out there, they don't know any better. And then you have like this footnote, almost like adding translation adding knowledge to the story there's always this duplicity and this uh chase after truth when it comes to borges for just being three pages it really almost felt like a riddle to me that i was supposed to be unwinding who asterion was and what was going on with him and it wasn't until the very end that i i didn't pick up on any of the clues or anything uh i'm not as good as yet as you are uh but i i I had an inkling of what it was and i looked it up and i was like yep i got it i knew it uh, and I, just, I thought it was a great little twist on a you know very popular Greek mythology. So what you're referring to, you're like dancing around it here. The, the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Almost see if myth, you figured it out too. <laughs> the, the myth of the Minotaur, right? Like, yeah. And you are correct. I, I don't. They say other Asterion, but like you know, like that, I don't know if that's like obvious enough. You know what I mean? Because when we think of Minotaur, a lot of people don't think of the Minotaur that was put in a maze that you know that there were seven men and seven women sent there every year as sacrifices to be killed and wander these mazes, eventually slaughtered by Theseus, right? Like the classic tale that you've said. I don't think many people think of Asterion. Like they don't think of his name as like being connected to the bull. They think of him as like, like you said, like he's a monster. He's, he's a destroyer of men. He's an obstacle to overcome, not a person to understand, I think to the average layperson. 
Yeah, I mean, you don't give characteristics like that sometimes to the villain. The villain's the bad guy, so, I mean, he gets a name, but he doesn't sometimes get his own personality or backstory or his own motivation, because then you would sympathize with him, and he wouldn't be a very good villain sometimes. Or maybe that makes him a better villain, but I, I really liked how Asterion puts his own twist on things of, hey, this is my perspective. These people are coming here to die, and I'm doing them a favor. I'm helping them sacrifice themselves so they can move on to, you know, the next world of what they need to do and i thought that was really really cool yeah they say every nine years nine men enter the house so that i may deliver them from evil right so it gives him purpose it gives him value and you know when you talk about like like when we think about when this story came out like let's back up I, i i mean exploring things from a villain's point of view i don't know when that began right like like it's probably not this as the first one but i wouldn't say it's common like it is today like every other year we have a new villains movie recently we had joker you know exp- kind of the, the reason why joker was so interesting and why the movie was maybe controversial is because batman's greatest villain never had a fully explained backstory you know what i mean he was he came from nothing he was the nihilist and to to go into that story here recently was kind of like a big deal And same thing, like, how many decades did we live with Sleeping Beauty and never really understanding Maleficent? And then now all of a sudden there's like two, I think, Maleficent movies out there that um, it makes you wonder why explore the villain? Have you heard the story as to what inspired Borges to write this? Now, the only rumor I heard about this was that he wrote this in just a couple of days. But I think that giving the villain the backstory makes you endearing to them. The reason Batman is so popular or Spider-Man is so popular is because you can relate to them and you really can't relate to the Joker because he's just a random guy that shoots, you know, Bruce's parents and turns him into Batman, where with the Joker, it gives him, you know, this this saga, this sob story that you're like, man, I feel for this guy, uh, like the big bad wolf and Wicked and, you know, Black Adam movie coming out. You give these guys backstories and it, it helps you, you know, relate to them, connect with them more. If you go to the epilogue of, so this was published in the Aleph, like the short story collection. If you go to the epilogue of that, there, there's a quote here. It says, um, Borges wrote that the inspiration for the House of Asterion on the character of its sad protagonist was the Minotaur, a painting completed in 1885 by English artist George Frederick Watts. The painting depicts the mythical Minotaur as a solitary and seemingly lonely creature leaning on a parapet and staring long, longingly into the sea while gripping a crushed bird in his hand. Which is interesting, right? Because if you think about the... If you if you actually go into Greek mythology, there is backstory to the Minotaur. Did you know that? Yeah, so he was the product of... Um, what is it? The, the father... Uh, it's incestual or something like that. and And he's like you know, been cursed because, uh, it was a bull, you know, I, I don't remember well, his father thing. Minos was, um, basically he, he was born from Zeus and, um, a, a woman Europa and him and his, his siblings uh, of the siblings, he became the king of this area and it was disputed, right? Because his father was Zeus, like who's to say who should be the king. And he right. prayed to Poseidon to have a sign to show that he was, going to be the king so poseidon sends a white bull from the sea and here in this painting right 
this this minotaur is looking at the sea. It's almost like he's looking at uh, his father in a sense, because what happens is uh, Minos is supposed to slaughter this bull as, you know, the payment for Poseidon sending it to him to prove that he's the king, but he doesn't. He tricks Poseidon and tries to slaughter and, and do a different bull to keep that other bull around, and Poseidon becomes angry. And so what he does is he curses Minos's wife to hook up with this bull. Oh, and that's right. When, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So so when so if you view this this bowl that Poseidon sent as like the wrath of the gods, a a representation or symbol of sin. Yeah. Of uh, well, sin sin also has like a very catholic word, uh, right? So well, not catholic, but it's very christian. So I, I almost want to just say like evils and just treachery and betrayal. Yeah. Betrayal and okay. um so so here comes Minos. And when, uh, or not Minos, um, Asterion, right? So he's named after his, I think his granddad. So that's why you'll notice in the story, they say the other Asterion, because he's the second Asterion. And a very Borgesian theme is to kind of explore this duality or multiple existences, right? So, so comes the Minotaur, AKA Asterion the second, I think. And he's got like bloodlust. He goes around killing people. So that's why they send him to the myth to kind of cover up this embarrassing thing, this treacherous thing. There's there's a couple of different angles to it. He's a black sheep. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's half half the black taurine, if you will. Okay, so, there we go. <laughs> yeah. So when we look at this, where's the first wrong? Like if we look at a first cause and we try to explain this person's evil, why? Is it because he kills people? Well, he just killed people because he was cursed by the gods. Well, is is it because the gods cursed him? Well, no, the only reason the gods cursed him is because this human betrayed them and lied to them. And, you know, you can keep going back and back to the story of, like, what is the first cause of evil? And that's what's interesting to this whole villain flip, right? Which, which I think was earlier on. I'm not saying it's the first, but it's kind of like the early on explanation where we, we always explain the Minotaur as a monster, a killer, and Borges flips that to say, well, there's a reason for that. He's, if we look at it from an existentialist standpoint, this this Minotaur was sent to a maze and lives alone. So he gets to choose and assign his own value and right and wrong. Like you mentioned morality earlier, but morality comes from, I think, society or a rule system such as the Bible. So if he's sitting here in this maze developing his own rule set of what's right and wrong, is it wrong to kill? Like, where, where do you get your food? Right? Is this really a maze that you can't escape? Well, he doesn't want to because there's that line about how when he went out, he was laughed at. So he ran yeah. back to that maze and just chills. So in the perspective, what's right or wrong when you're not being imprinted upon society and you're just surviving? Do you blame the hawk for eating the squirrel? That's a good point. The Minotaur Asterion is persecuted, shunned out in life. So where do you go? Home, your safety. So the maze is his home. And then you have... Every nine years, these nine people invading his home. Well, if someone came into your home, you would defend it, right? So from that logic, he's just defending his home. You could almost look at him as the, the good guy from this perspective, some, from a certain point of view. <laughs> of course, of course. Like, well, it's all perspective. And how far back do you yeah. go to causes? Where does your personal choice matter in the situation? Especially if you Did he get a been choice? imprinted. I don't think he got a choice. No, Minos, Minos sent him down there with, without a choice, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so here's another question. In the opening, in several parts, they talk about infinity. Right? There's an infinity entrances, right? A very Borgesian comment. And the footnote says, well, it said 14, but we know he meant infinity. 
why do you think Borges, why, why do you think he introduced this narrator, this editor, to overwrite what the narrator is saying? Why, why have an editor change the story? From what I know about Borges, I think that it's the idea that there's always the realm of possibility, choices. Uh, you know, Asterion could have made different choices. Uh, if it, the place is this large and there are infinite amount of doors, he, he could hide from the invaders. Uh, he could make it so that he doesn't have to kill them, perhaps, if it, you know, unless you know he's using them as a few food source, like you mentioned. But I think that that's the idea of that, you know, no matter how small we think our house is, there's always an infinite amount of choices for us to make. Okay. I like that. I like that. What about um, the idea of myths and stories? So this is based on a Greek story passed down generation to generation, years to years. Sure, it's a story, but what makes a story stick around, right? And how does that story change with how we relate to it, whether we're sympathetic with the Minotaur or whether we're sympathetic with Theseus and such? You know, what does it mean when stories are passed down and there's small changes along the way. Does that change the myth? Does that change the way we look at it and relate and sympathize with the people in these stories even? Oh, definitely. I think the reason that a story would stick around is its relevance. One that stays for a long time is something that you can continue to go back to and learn new lessons from or that you can relate to. You can teach from you know, your, the, the next generations. And I think with a story like this, uh, it allows you to change the little twists here and there. Uh, and it's almost like we talked about many times before, the telephone game where the, the new time it's told, you might tweak something in order to teach a new lesson to your son or daughter or, or grandchild. And then they might tweak something because times have changed in order to teach their children or grandchildren. Uh, but I, I don't think that a story... Uh, is worse off for those changes because it's always going to be relevant to the to the person that's using them for whatever purpose that may be. It's almost kind of like the reverberations of what's most important to a generation kind of get added or even injected into story sometimes. Um, now, one of the things you said earlier was that it wasn't clear till the end. I, I, I do not think you were alone on that one. Why, so if you look at a maze, how do you know when you have the answer to a maze? Well, you don't until the end, right? Yeah. In the same way that he wrote this story to reflect the maze, you don't get the answer of, oh, he is talking about the Minotaur. Maybe you recognize the Asterian reference and such, but um, I'm going to read you a quote here. It says, modern analysis of Borges' original handwritten manuscript, which is kept at the University of Virginia, have revealed that revisions he made to earlier drafts of the work in order to more effectively disguise the narrator's identity in the story. For instance, Borges replaced the phrase los griegos, aka the Greeks, with los hombres, the men, in the third sentence, removing a potential intimation of Greek mythology. So all along, we, we have evidence of early studies that show that, that he was specifically attempting to make it obscure. So that knowledge of everything that was happening, again, withholding knowledge, a very Borgesian thing, uh, isn't clear until the end. What do you think that does for a story when you don't, you don't understand it, you don't get the key, you don't know that you've reached the end of the maze until you have the answer? Yeah, I guess this is very crypto. Uh, it depends on how you read. It depends on what kind of reader you are. For me, I love it because it gives me that 
aha moment, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I love that surprise or the twist or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it seems to hit home when right towards the end, you get what the author was going for, what they were trying to teach you, uh, or what they were trying to express, at least for me, in the way I interpreted the way they expressed it. Uh, but if not, if that's irritating to you of like, I just want to know the information up front, i.e. somebody that, you know, goes to the very last page or the last chapter and reads that first to alleviate some of that anxiety during the reading of the story. Uh, I, I get that. So I think there's kind of two different ways that you can take it. Uh, my interpretation is, is that Borges is trying to teach you uh, to be more sympathetic and to be more human using such a non-human character. And I love it. It's amazing. It's brilliant. It just it proves again why he is one of the greatest writers that is not celebrated as much as he should be. There's something about Borges and the way that once you have the correct knowledge, I'll leave a link to this talk from Jack the Rambling Reconteur where he talks about you know this Gnostic uh, information. And if you're really into Kabbalism and such, I'm don't know enough about it to be able to talk about some of these terms and such. But you know, you go to Noah's channel for that. But there's this idea that once you have the right knowledge, right, once you have the name for God, Yahweh, that you can pronounce and the language that's been lost, only then do you unlock true awareness, knowledge of something. And there's something to be said about once you understand what was happening in the story, you go back and reread it. And with the knowledge, like reading it the first time without knowledge, you could be lost, you could be enjoying it. But reading it the second time with knowledge, with that information, the correct name for things, the correct understanding of things, it transforms the read. And that just seems to be something that Borges seems to love to play with to me. And you're going to get more out of it that way, right? Because the second read through can be more enjoyable sometimes than the first read through. I, I know that is maybe a hot take, but uh, because it's hard to, you never get to re-experience something again, but to have a new experience with something that is old and dear to you, oh, that's magical, and that's Borges. There are other worlds than these, gunslinger. Right. <laughs> My name has been Una. Thank you for tuning in. Go check out our friends. I'll leave a link in the you know description doobly-doo down below to check out some more discussions on Borges because, man, he is a great author that we love discussing. Peace out. Peace.